It's been 65 years since the world first heard the term artificial intelligence. And though we can all agree AI has a significant presence in this 21st century, it's the what next in AI that has many of us on the edge. It's an interesting fact that one of the grand challenges for today's AI that's uh, been set by funding agencies is to get uh, machines to have the common sense of an 18-month-old baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's Dr. Melanie Mitchell, a leading expert in the field of artificial intelligence and cognitive science. She unpacks why we're still very far from the once idealized house cleaning robots and autonomous vehicles. The problem of creating intelligent machines is always seems to be harder than we imagined. And one of the reasons for that is that we are quite unaware of our own intelligence, you know, the unconscious part of our intelligence. In this first episode of the Uncovering Innovation series, I get some insight into the bottlenecks in AI research and what we might expect moving forward. The field is kind of, I think now, at a turning point where People who, who do research in AI are realizing some of the limitations of the current approaches and trying to think about, like, how do we make the next step? And there's a lot of disagreement about where to go. Now, let's listen to my entire interview with Dr. Melanie Mitchell, who joins the podcast from the Santa Fe Institute, where she serves as the Davis Professor of Complexity, Science Board Co-Chair and Science Steering Committee. Dr. Mitchell, thank you very much indeed for joining us for this session of our podcast. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's a real pleasure to to have you to talk to us for our first episode of this series of the podcast. And we're talking about AI, and if you open a newspaper, if you switch on the television, if you listen to a podcast, you can't escape the terms uh, AI. But what does AI actually mean? AI is a remarkably hard term to define, and that's because it keeps changing its meaning over time. In general, AI means anything that is considered intelligent behavior by us that's performed by a machine. So that might be something like having a conversation or uh, driving a car or translating between languages and you know all of these kinds of things that we do all the time uh, or we use AI systems to do for us like Google Translate. But you know we don't have a good definition of the term intelligence even for people. So we used to think, for example, that playing chess at the level of a grandmaster would be the pinnacle of intelligence. And that if you could do that, a machine could do that, then it would be truly intelligent. But, you know, that happened in the 1990s. And even though the program could beat, say, Garry Kasparov at chess, it couldn't do anything else. So it seemed that chess, playing chess, was no longer considered to be you know, real intelligence or to require real intelligence. So this is why the term keeps changing. But, you know, more recently, we've had systems that are much more capable at doing the kinds of things we call intelligence. And so that's why you see AI all over the place. Do you think the aim is for, people talk a lot about general intelligence, don't they? They almost want a, a machine to be like a human, to have all round, if you like, intelligence. Is that the aim? Well, that was the aim at the beginning of the field. You know, the pioneers of the field thought that within, say, 10 or 20 years from the 1960s, we'd have machines that are as intelligent as humans, as able to be general, be able to do all kinds of different things. 
But the, that aim seemed to be much harder than people imagined. And more recently, AI is focused on more narrow kinds of intelligence, you know, being able to do one particular task well. One example would be, say, say, transcribing our speech. You know, you can now dictate emails and texts to your phone and it can transcribe them quite well, sometimes making errors, but usually very well. So that's a narrow kind of intelligence that it's able to recognize speech, but it can't do anything else. So there are still many people who want to get machines to be more generally intelligent, but no one really knows how to do that very well. So for now, like commercial applications of AI are all quite narrow intelligences. From what I can see, if you look back to the 1950s when the term was coined, things seem to go into cycles. You know, I read about uh, AI summers and AI winters and, uh, and people get very optimistic and excited about the whole field and then it dies back down again. Why, why do you think that is? Well, that kind of cycle has been going on, as you say, since the 1950s. And we've seen several cycles of AI optimism followed by disappointment, uh, which is called an AI winter when, say, funding dries up, the term AI is no longer used by people, and then some new uh, innovation comes about and we now have now a new AI summer. So we're kind of in that period right now. I think the reasons for this is that, well, at least one reason is that people are very prone to optimism once they see some improvement. So, you know, we've seen a lot of improvement in the AI systems that we have in the narrow sense. Uh, and that makes us quite optimistic that we're only a short way away from much more general intelligence. And so people tend to kind of make over-optimistic predictions about how soon we'll get to general AI or even hard tasks like self-driving cars. That's bound to disappoint people because the problem of creating intelligent machines is always seems to be harder than we imagined. And one of the reasons for that is that we are quite unaware of our own intelligence, you know, the unconscious part of our intelligence that turns out to be harder to automate than anyone imagined. I think you wrote uh, recently that, uh, you know, the hard things can be easy and the easy things can be hard. You know, some of the things that we take for granted as, as human beings that, uh, that are intelligence that uh, machines find really, really hard to do. Can, can you talk us through that? Yeah, that's been a paradox throughout the history of the, the field. The, the idea that the things that we find quite difficult, we humans find difficult, like playing chess at a grandmaster level or, or, you know, translating between hundreds of different languages and so on, those things turn out to be easier to some degree for machines than the simplest things like having a conversation like we're doing right now or uh, looking out at the world and describing what we see or, you know, walking across a crowded street without bumping into anyone. These things the, turn out to be the hardest things to uh, get machines to do, because in part, we really haven't, don't understand how we humans do them. So that's, uh, it, it's, it's an interesting fact that one of the grand challenges for today's AI that's been set by funding agencies is to get uh, machines to have the common sense of an 18-month-old baby. 
(laughs) (laughs) So they can do all kinds of fancy tasks, but they don't have the common sense of babies. So that's the paradox. I wonder when when you think about it. I wonder I wonder if we get too hooked up on the expressions, you know, and that we we try and give uh, machines or computers sort of hu- in human emotions and and human capabilities. When when do they actually need that? I mean, because you know a lot of the frustration that's been in terms of uh, general intelligence, but but there's been, there have been great advances, haven't there, with you know, more intelligent machines, their ability to process data and, you know, and so forth. And, and, and you talk about speech recognition and facial recognition and, and the ability to see complex data patterns. So are we kind of barking up the wrong tree, do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. For many kinds of tasks, human-like intelligence might not be the right thing to emulate. So one example is recently uh, the company DeepMind was able to build a system that could predict the shapes of proteins from their sequence data. And this is something that has been a big challenge in biology for century, you know. And this system was better than uh, all of the humans that were trying to do this ta- same task. And it did it in a very different way from humans. So that was a great uh, advance that was done in a very non-human-like way. But on the other side, there are tasks for which we actually have to have machines more like humans. So one of those tasks is say, autonomous vehicles. They have to drive in our streets, in our cities, and interact with humans. And so they have to be able to perceive the world the way that humans do, or else they'll get into accidents. And that's happened already, where these systems are perceiving say, a stopped fire truck on the highway is something else and crashing into it. So it depends on the task and the degree to which the task requires interfacing with humans. It's a very interesting point that you raise with uh, driverless cars, because to a lot of people, a driverless car is, is very important and is, you know, sort of almost uh, symptomizes what we're talking about and, and you know, for artificial in, in intelligence. And if you read you know, over the last few years, the number of predictions that have said by now, you know, you and I will have been driving to the store and to work and, and back home again, with driverless cars right now. But it's not it's not come about, as you said earlier, it's just harder than we think, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, driving seems so easy. It's It's, you know, you can do it sort of unconsciously without really thinking too hard about it. But there's many unconscious things that go into driving safely. One is looking at other cars or other pedestrians on the road and trying to predict what they're going to do next because we're sensitive to very subtle kinds of body language and understanding the world, you know, in a way that we understand when somebody's distracted and when they're looking at us or not, we understand what sort of what kinds of things we should stop the car for because we have common sense about the world. And this is something that it turns out to be very difficult. And um, this is really the obstacle for self-driving cars is having that kind of common sense that we take for granted. Are you looking forward to driving in a driverless car? I would love to be able to drive in a driverless car. I hate driving. I think that it would be a wonderful advance, but I do think that they're not quite ready yet 
They can drive very well in many circumstances, but they don't have the kind of common sense to deal with unexpected events that occasionally come up. And so that's why right now there has to be a human in the loop to take over if the car can't deal with some kind of new situation it hasn't been trained on. So I would not take my hands off the steering wheel. So I, I read today. I read today that IBM Watson—they've uh, uh, given up their medical practice. They apparently have invested four billion dollars into this. And uh, read today that uh, that they pulled out of this and they've sold that business to somebody else. And, and I wonder—you know—coming back to the point that you made earlier about cycles and hype and and funding—does this really matter? In so much as will at some point all the money that goes into this sort of dry up because people aren't—you know—companies aren't seeing those grand prizes that they that they want to invest in i think in certain sectors it it will dry up and in other sectors it it won't because you know today's ai systems are very useful and we are getting a better understanding of what their limitations are so ibm thought that it would be possible to take their watson system which you know played this game jeopardy incredibly well and transfer all of that, you know, ability to gain knowledge to medicine and and other fields like law and so on, to be able to read books about medicine and read papers and be able to grasp knowledge that would allow it to answer questions. But it turned out that that was harder than people thought, right? Because the notion of reading involves understanding what we've read. Whereas for a machine, To understand what it's read is very difficult. We haven't really achieved that yet because these machines don't have any kind of human-like understanding. So that's, you know, I think that's the problem with uh, Watson and many other kinds of applications that they were just not there yet so that these systems can work in the broad human world. It's very interesting what you say. And coming back to the point you made right at the beginning about the chess playing computer, where, where you know, we might think, as you say, to be able to beat a grandmaster at chess shows that you're very intelligent. I mean, I certainly couldn't beat anybody at chess, let alone a grandmaster. And I, I wonder, though, if that's the, the issue where just becoming better at playing chess doesn't make, you know, you have general in- intelligence and that we almost set these tests for computers to machines to be able to do, but they're not actually in of themselves going to lead to a sequence that gives them general intelligence because machines surely are looking for patterns in the data and they're not necessarily becoming intelligent. And I wonder how you how one resolves that. What's the, the next step that takes it beyond just sequential problems and actually moves towards this general intelligence because the point you made about driverless cars is essential isn't it that uh, somewhere along the line the machine has to interact with a a human yeah i i think that's the big question how do we make progress right and many people have different opinions and the field is kind of i think now at a turning point where People who, who do research in AI are realizing some of the limitations of the current approaches and trying to think about, like, how do we make the next step? And there's a lot of disagreement about where to go. My own feeling is that we have to understand our own intelligence better. 
And therefore, people in AI have to work more closely with people who study intelligence in other systems, such as humans or human children or even other animals that we consider to be intelligent. So I think the field has to get a little bit more interdisciplinary and broader and talk to people much more in other fields. What do you think the next breakthroughs are, are likely to be in, you know, we've, as we said, we've seen machine learning, we've seen uh, facial recognition, and, and what do you think are the, the next things on the horizon? Well, I think the current kind of systems we have that maybe aren't generally intelligent, but are very good at picking up patterns and data, as you say, can be applied in many domains. I think they can be applied in, say, healthcare, but not autonomously, like, you know, IBM imagined Watson would be, but rather in kind of collaboration with a human to help humans. I think, you know, another t- term people use is uh, instead of artificial intelligence, they, they use augmented intelligence. So another kind of AI where the, the machine is meant to augment human intelligence, not replace it. And I think that there will be many breakthroughs in that area, especially perhaps in assisting scientists who have lots of data and are looking for patterns in that data that can help them understand what's going on and, and, you know, apply it like we saw in protein folding. So I think there will be breakthroughs in that area. When we talk about AI, most of the time we talk about breakthroughs and we talk about uh, benefits and we talk about certainly economic benefits. But there's been a lot of people are a lot of worried about the sort of ethical questions that uh, AI raises. What do you think are some of the, the main issues there? So the ethical issues are huge and quite broad. They range from things like how, how autonomous should we allow our systems to be in making decisions, for example, in using weapons. There's a lot of uh, military applications of AI that we might actually worry quite a bit about, or making decisions about, you know, people's lives, like, should we give this person a loan? Or should we hire this person? Or should we uh, send this person to prison? And There are algorithms that are being used to um, make these decisions that can be quite biased because they've been given data to learn from that itself is biased, for example, that might have some gender or racial biases or other kinds of subtle biases that people using the algorithms aren't aware of. One of the uh, most well-known areas in which people have seen biases is facial recognition, where the facial recognition systems we have are more accurate on people with lighter colored skin, partially because of the data that they've been trained on, uh, and also um, more accurate on males than females, and you know have other kinds of biases. And if those systems are being deployed as they are, for instance, in airports, in um, surveillance, in identifying, say, uh, potential criminals, this can cause a lot of bias and and actually exacerbate uh, inequalities. So this this is a big problem in the field. 
I wonder what what you your feeling is what we can do about that because it feels to me that a lot of AI or uh, augmented intelligence as you say uh, comes down to trust you know we have to trust that the driverless car is going to uh, not crash we have to trust that the facial recognition system is going to work and for all those uh, different type of reasons and if groups of people don't trust the systems for the reasons that you've suggested the the kind of whole thing breaks down in a way because they become harder for an individual to understand and therefore the individual has to trust the system. So what do you think we can do about it? Uh, That's a billion dollar question. (laughs) And I think one of the problems is people don't really know how we can sort of fix these systems. In computer science in general, there's a, a notion of verification of programs, which is a way of actually Uh, mathematically proving that a program is going to do what you want it to do. We don't have that yet for AI. I think that's something that we have to put a lot more research into is how to actually evaluate these systems and to show that they are trustworthy. We don't have those kinds of uh, formal tools yet, but I think that's a big area of research. We also just have to be much more sensitive to the potential biases and and limitations of these systems. And, you know, there's this uh, pressure when you're in in a company and you're trying to sell a product to downplay its limitations. So I think there has to be some kind of company, you know, some oversight of these AI products that are not just done within a company that has, might have a conflict of interest. But, you know, in some kind of uh, regulatory system outside of companies and their, their employees. My final question would be, you know, you've picked a great field to specialize in, haven't you? I mean, this has been, you know, one of the defining fields of our time, artificial intelligence. And if I was to ask you a really unfair question and to get your crystal ball out, how would you see the future unfolding from here? Oh, that's, that is an unfair question. And, and, you know, everybody in the field who makes predictions gets into trouble. Absolutely. (laughs) I would say that we, we will see a continued cycle of these AI summers and winters as we get more and more um, ambitious about how to apply AI systems. I think we will see some governments waking up and starting to regulate some of these applications. I think there will be a lot of breakthroughs, especially as we understand better and better the science of intelligence in general. You know, I'm hoping the field would become more more of a science and less of a sort of pure engineering enterprise. But if you ask me, like, when are we going to have general intelligence? You know, when are we going to have robots like we see in movies? That's not going to happen in my lifetime, I believe. But it's very hard to predict. I don't see it. I think it's possible in principle. But then there's the question of actually, do we want that? Do we actually want to create such systems? And, you know, we'll, what benefits will they have and what harms will might they cause? And I think that's something we really have to grapple with. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, thank you ever so much indeed for taking the time to talk to us today. Really appreciate it. And that's a great note to leave it on. So thank you very much. Thank you. Now, the role of artificial intelligence in our future is not the only uncertainty we're facing. Much is expected from the world of quantum computing. There are clearly considerations around national security. If you've got computers that can break your cryptographic encoding schemes, 
In episode two of Uncovering Innovation, I'm joined by the Provost of Imperial College and experimental physicist, Dr. Ian Wormsley, who breaks down what a quantum computer is and how it might impact our society in coming decades. Thank you for listening, and if you like what you hear, please subscribe and follow to be alerted when new episodes are released. Until next time, I'm Stephen Horne, and you're listening to On the Edge.